This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Part of the work I'm working on is like, hey, um, are we not only prepared to respond to this type of incident, but what kind of systems and structures uh, can we put in place to prevent, prevent these types of things? Welcome to EM Weekly, and this year is Todd DeVoe speaking, and this week I'm really happy that we have a in-studio guest, and his name is Andrew Friend, and he's actually a friend of mine, uh, more than just his, his last name. Um, Andrew and I met at the Executive Academy over at EMI, and it's, uh, number one, it's, like I said before, the Executive Academy is such a great experience, and you get to meet a lot of great people in the field of emergency management, leaders of emergency management, and uh, I highly recommend you going, and you meet and you make lifelong friends like like Andrew. The cool thing about Andrew's story compared to others is that he actually uh, has made his career move into the international space, uh, working um, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, he started um, at a hospital and really developed their emergency management program over there. And now we'll get into this in a little bit, but he's pretty much starting basically FEMA for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So Andrew, welcome to EM Weekly. Hey, thank you, Todd, for having me. I was wondering if you're going to uh, make a joke about my last name in that intro, so I, <laughs> I appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so one of the things, if you go to EMI, one of the things you have to do, it's, it's a law over there. It's, you know, you get in trouble if you don't do it. You have to sing a, uh, a karaoke song. And, uh, <laughs> so one day I sang, you got a friend. and uh, It was great. <laughs> I told him he should change his profession, but he won't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, oh, man, so uh, welcome back to the States. Hey, thanks. You know, it's good to be here and, uh, you know, what a better time than the holiday season. Right. So you came in all the way from uh, from Saudi Arabia. So what's going on over there? Anything exciting? A lot of exciting things. You know, uh, I tell people all the time emergency management's really in its infancy and really in, in something new in the Middle East. So it's a real exciting time, not only in Saudi Arabia, but in, across the entire Middle East. We're actually the structures, you know, uh, the systems, the, the NIMS of the Middle East is being constructed as we speak. And being able to be a part of that, I, uh, to me, is it's been a great adventure and a great journey. And a lot of... A big part of it people don't understand is the work done in the Middle East actually impacts the homeland security of the United States. Oh, sure. And that's in many different facets. So being able to be there and kind of be an author and, uh, uh, you know, be one of the architects of the system is directly impacting the safety of the United States of America and one of our biggest strategic allies in the world, which is Saudi Arabia. So I, I, I tend to ask my guests this question of, of how you got into emergency management. And I know your story is... It's super interesting. So I like how I want to go, like, how did you start emergency management, get into emergency management, and how did you make it to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, well, it, uh, it's actually an interesting story. It all uh, started in uh, 2005, honestly, uh, when I got my EMT and I started working for a local ambulance company in San Diego, California. Uh, eventually, I ended up on their uh, kind of what was 
called their disaster response team, uh, which led to me responding to my first disaster ever in life, which was Hurricane Rita. So I went to Hurricane Rita and was hopscotching around Texas with a partner uh, for 30-something days, I forget now. Um, so that was a great experience. Fast forward five years later, I'd finished my undergrad, done a lot of other work. During that time, I was working EMS, uh, you know, while going to college in Arizona. Uh, I'd become a Prescott hotshot firefighter, so I skipped skipping across the United States during the fire seasons, going to all different types of incidents, whether it's fires or floods or hurricanes or wh whatever. And out of the blue in 2010, my partner from 2005 called me up. Hey, Andrew, what are you doing? Oh, X, Y, Z. You know, I'm, you know, finished my degree. I'm doing X, Y, Z. And my bachelor's degree was actually in global security and intelligence. Okay. Um, she's like, well, hey, I'm in Saudi Arabia. I came out here on a paramedic job. I'm working for a hospital and we need somebody with your skill set. Uh, they're looking into emergency management, but what I'll refer to during the interview is disaster management because that's what they call it out in, sure. in Saudi Arabia. Right. And she's like, are you interested? And I'm like, well, the word global is in my undergrad degree, so I <laughs> might as well go global and get a little of a, you know experience overseas. So uh, in 2010, in October, I, I head overseas uh, to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and I've, I've been in the region ever since, you know. And it's, it's been an interesting ride, that's for sure. And so when I got out there, I was uh, contracting for a hospital called uh, King Faisal Specialist Hospital Research Center, long name. And I actually went from working with their EMS department and kind of doing the pseudo job of disaster emergency manager because mm -hmm. it didn't exist. Uh, to becoming the first ever emergency manager for the organization. And it was a great experience because I got to help be the leader to create from scratch a comprehensive emergency management program for this hospital. And it became in 2018 the first hospital in the world accredited by the emergency management accreditation program, wow. the first in the world, and actually their 100th accredited program. And I, that was, you know, crazy to see getting out there, then getting this first position ever, then championing it and bringing the people together and getting the stakeholders to agree to it becoming the first in the world. And, uh, you know, that's a very important hospital. A lot of people don't realize it. When I say hospital, I don't, I don't think people... I think they see it from the vignette or the lens of the United States, a hospital out there. This hospital has 11,000 employees from 54 different countries. It's over a million square meters horizontally, not wow. even counting vertically. Has its own ambulance company, does 10,000 calls a year. Has its own full-fledged fire department. Has 200 guards in their guard force. Um, it's the hospital for the king, the royal family, the president of the United States when they visit. So I got to personally write the emergency response plan for two kings, the previous, the late king, uh, King Abdullah and the current King, King Salman. I was responsible for working with the White House Medical Unit, State Department, Secret Service for writing the emergency response plan for President Obama two times when he was out there and the recent trip from uh, President Trump, which was his first uh, international visit overseas. Um, so when I say hospital, it really doesn't do it justice for what this organization is. Um, and the different specialties and the supply chain and the critical infrastructure. It's really a city um, a city with big political impacts across the world than it is. You get what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Um, and to lead that to the first successful EMAP accreditation in the world was just an amazing experience. And as an American, because I'm a very patriarchal person, you know that, and mm -hmm. we got to walk the battlefields of Gettysburg and talk about this. Right. The fact that I was able to not only help the Saudis and the Saudi people, but also increase um, the resiliency of America and our homeland security was just Truly a phenomenal experience. Well, that's great. So then how did you move from the hospital to, um, to, the, to the kingdom itself? 
Um, so when I was in the hospital, um, I was working a lot with different ministries. So Ministry of Health or the State Department or, you know, these different uh, entities. And I started kind of branching out. So the MOH would ask me, hey, can you go to this facility over here and do a, a HIRA, a hazard identification risk assessment for us? Or can you go over here and do a THIRA, a threat hazard identification risk assessment? Um, so I started doing those different types of things. I started working a lot with the different entities in the government. In 2016 or 15, I think, I was asked to uh, consult on the uh, CBRN, Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear um, Committee, to help draft the national action plan for the entire kingdom. And I was the only non-Saudi sitting on that. So I did that. And by doing these different things, I was making connections and networking, and people saw my skill set, my leadership ability, um, to where eventually I started getting different different offers, different things coming my way, different requests. And I was already looking at this point to come home, you know. Um, I've had a great time in the Middle East. The Saudi people are some of the most hospitable in the world. But, you know, I'm, I'm ready to come home and, you know, start a family and start that whole f next phase of my life and use what I've learned abroad here to, you know, increase the resiliency of the American citizen, right, directly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I, I ended up getting those opportunities. And what came of it is I got the, the offer, hey, we're going to be working on the structure for Saudi Arabia. We're going to be working on essentially the NEMS and the NRF of Saudi Arabia. Would you be interested in something like that? And I knew I was already looking to transfer back to the United States. And I said, hey, this is perfect. Um, the way it came to me, I'd be in an advisory role. It was kind of a shorter term project, you know, nothing that was going to take years or, or decades to do. So I'm like, hey, what a great way to, you know, kind of finish off my career in the Middle East by helping to take the work that myself and my team, we did at the grassroots level and take that up to a national level. And one of the reasons I went for EMAP accreditation for the hospital was because there was no set standards at a national level. There right. was nothing. So I saw EMAP as a way to take international standards and best practices and put something in the hospital that could become a grassroots movement. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean spread it like a virus, but a good virus, not a bad one. <laughs> We're not talking about MERS here. We're talking about a good virus, a good virus of preparedness and resiliency. And the way that was going to be done is King Faisal is a reference for the entire region. It was the first in Saudi Arabia to get joint commission uh, accreditation. After that, over 200 organizations went through because they did. So I said, hey, I can do the same thing with EMAP. Get, once they get accredited, all these other organizations are going to want to go through it. And then we're going to have standardization and interoperability, sure. at least at the grassroots level, to where we can work with each other. And then when the national system catches up, it's going to be you know, so easy to plug this in, and they're going to be already so far ahead of the game. And now, look, it's all come full circle. And now I'm at the national level. And I'm helping to, to, to achieve this dream more directly than I ever expected. I didn't expect to be asked to, you know, help create this system for the country, but I'm in that position now. So it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to see that come full circle and take what we did at the grassroots level to the national level. And I think it's going to, you know, it's, it's already, it's going extremely well. And I think, uh, you know, I think this, I know the Saudis are very excited about it, and I think it's going to be a great result for not only the Saudi people, the Middle East as a region, uh, that whole side of the world, but the United States as well, because them being our strategic ally and our dependence on oil and the tie for the oil transactions to the U.S. dollar, you know, having them to be able to properly prepare for, mitigate against, respond to, and recover from any kind of disaster or even prevention when we're talking about terrorism and counterterrorism, to me is priceless. 
So what what are some of the challenges that you ran into? I mean, I can't be all smooth and, and you know roses over there. Right? What are you talking about? It's all like rainbows <laughs> and gumdrops, and it's all perfect. No, um, definitely. I mean, it's just like anywhere. You're going to have your issues. Um, there, there's definitely being new in the kingdom. I definitely had to learn a lot of cultural differences. You know, things about which hand should you shake with, things about how to interact with people, things that you and me might. Uh, have a respectful argument or disagreement in, in, in you know, a, a meeting and then we can be friends after might not necessarily be the same case. So it's about learning these differences in cultures so that I could navigate it appropriately. One of the cool things uh, that was a byproduct of that was because I wasn't from that culture, people wouldn't necessarily hold me to that. So I actually became like kind of a, a middleman in a sure. sense. So I would have parties that didn't like each other right? Didn't refuse to work each other. Come to me, I would broker come some sort of way to solve it. And I think I, the main reason I was able to do that is because I wasn't, you know, I was there as like an American. I wasn't there from the culture. So I think that gave me a lot of special tools in my tool belt to be successful and get things done in other situations where it might not have been possible. Almost like a diplomat, huh? Yeah. And you know, um, I grew up in San Diego. I grew up in a very cultural, diverse uh, city in high school and, you know, growing up and all that. But being over there and being in, like, in just, just the facility alone, people from 54 different countries I was responsible for, working with, coordinating, supervising, managing in high-stress situations. So it taught me so many lessons about messaging, not only languages, but to people with disabilities. It taught me a whole lot about, hey, this, this culture is going to perceive this different than this culture. You know, we might think it's a simple thing as putting your hand out and saying stop, but there's cultures out there where that means something completely different than stop. So learning all of that was quite the task, but that experience, again, was invaluable. Now bringing that back to the United States, when I run into different cultures that I've worked with and have, ex have had experience with overseas, I'm going to have all those unique, uh, you know, files and lessons filed away in my mind sure. that I can pull up and work on to ultimately keep people safe. Because if we're sending a message to people and they are going to perceive it a different way, it sure is nice to know that and prevent it from causing any issues, you know, when a situation arises. So those are the main issues, I, I would say. And also, too, you know, it's, it's, it can be hard being over there and being away from your fam family, your direct support system. But... Luckily, I've always been a pretty adventurous person, and you know, I got to travel the world and see a lot of cool things out there. So, overall, it's been a great experience, and uh, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. And uh, maybe, if anything, I might have uh, eaten a few more shawarmas while I was out there. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm sure eventually I'm going to really miss the food. <laughs> right? No kidding. All right, so let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to talk about the response to uh, the missile attack. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST. We connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Welcome back from that break. And thank you so much for listening to our sponsors. And please, just when you reach out to them, let them know you heard them here uh, on EM Weekly, because without them, we couldn't really bring you the, the quality content that we're bringing. So, Andrew, before we went on to the um, break here, we're talking about you know, just your ability to work within Saudi Arabia and kind of a little, little personal story. So I get this alert talking about a, a missile attack um, over in Saudi Arabia, 
and I text you to see how things are going and what happened next? <laughs> yeah, that was funny. You were actually really quick with that, by the way. Because <laughs> um, uh, when, I, when I'm in Saudi Arabia, I'm, uh, I help out with a program called OSAC, the Overseas Security Advisory Council. I'm on the steering committee for that. So one of the things we do is we monitor, you know, kind of situations and try to put out information to different American interests in the region and different members of the council. And uh, you were actually quicker than they were uh, with that information. So I commend you on that. Um, yeah, so what had happened is uh, I think I was on a plane when I got the message from you. I think I, had, I was coming back from, was it from a FEMA? Yeah. From one of the Executive Academy courses? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, land, I landed and I think I was connecting through Utah. I got that message from you. So I sent a few messages out and then I was on a plane I, something like 18, 16 hours later, I was on a plane and 22 hours later, I was in Saudi Arabia. Um, so, you know, working in the region has been really interesting because I've had to, and gotten to deal with a lot of other threats that aren't normal to the United States. And we'll say, thank God for that. Right. Right. Um, whether it be, uh, missile intercepts, which used to be a lot of scud missiles being fired from Yemen to different types of ballistic missiles. Now the biggest threat and the, the most common threat are drones, you know, drones with explosives on them. And now we're starting to see land-based cruise missiles being used. So there's a whole um, evolution in the different threat, but they've been unique warfare threats uh, predominantly coming in through, through the south from Yemen. And there's a lot of evidence and stuff out there that's in the you know, mainstream media pointing that this, uh, these uh, materials are coming from Iran, being smuggled into Yemen, and being used uh, in the current war that's going on between the Saudi coalition and Yemen, uh, the, which are the Houthi rebels. Um, now, with the recent the attack, one we're talking about, there was some evidence and accusations that, hey, not all those attacks, either some of them in part or, or all of them, came from the south. They came from the north. Or did they come from Iran? So there's a lot of different finger-pointing um, and information going on with that, um, where those attacks came from. But I could tell you they were very unique attacks, and that impact impacted um, a major portion of the world's oil supply, just those two oil fields. They hit the Hres oil field and the Abek oil field. Uh, and I forget the number, but I think that directly was at least, I think it was 6% of the, the global oil production wow. immediately. And between those two, I have to. Look, I should have looked up those stats before I came in here. It's an amazing amount how much of the oil supply, like that, that affected. Um, so part of the work I'm working on is like, hey, um, are we not only prepared to respond to this type of incident, but what kind of systems and structures uh, can we put in place to prevent prevent these types of things? So I mean, I know as emergency managers, we're all hazard, you know, and and I think sometimes here we get complacent with not really taking the terrorist threat seriously in the United mm. States. When I mean seriously, I'm not talking about our Homeland Security people. I'm talking about the, the community. Yeah, right? no, I get what, exactly what you're saying. Um, what do we do to, as EMs, as as professionals and emergency managers, as professionals, that our job is to take these threats seriously? Because, I mean, obviously we saw the attack in Pensacola. We saw, you know, the, the other issues that went down the other day in New Jersey um, although it was homegrown, um, with the uh, with the two um, terrorists that hit the the Jewish deli, um, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong over here? Well, look, this isn't uh, 
a situation that can truly be resolved, I feel. Um, you're going to have people with different ideologies, and whether it's just a strict ideology or whether it's mental illness or whatever it ends up being, it's impossible to prevent that. You can make all the rules and take away all the different opportunities for someone to do it, and they're going to figure out a way to do it anyway, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it ends up being. Um, but what we can do, and I think we've, you know, started to move in that, you know, right direction, is work together to share information and intelligence in real time to prevent what is preventable and to take steps uh, to put in structures that help you cut through the jurisdictional and the um, different policies that slow that process down, if you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So after 9-11, when we started working with the fusion centers, and by we, I don't mean me, I mean the United States of America, but when you know the fusion center came around, you know these were direct structures being put into place to kind of fight that. But really how you win this battle and how you mitigate it, because I don't think it truly can be prevented, is fighting the ideology. So one of the big things that Saudi Arabia started to do recently in this regard was they have like an anti-propaganda center now where they're putting out this information and videos in Arabic to try to get to those people um, that are being told these things, you know? And it can be hard. These are very remote parts of the world where a lot of the extremism is running rampant mm -hmm. to where they don't have the access to the internet and YouTube and <clears throat> school and the things that we have here. And they're being th told things are a certain way. So it's a, it's a matter of getting to those regions and sharing with them, hey, that's not necessarily true. Hey, have you looked at it from this, you know, from a religious aspect or from an ideology aspect? So that's work that is being done, but I think needs full support. And I think it needs um, not only support of the United States, but all the, the NATO countries and the allies and anyone who's serious about fighting terrorism. But to truly remove it, I don't think that's possible. Um, it's a matter of messaging people in the American public, see something, say something, I think has been great, and that's led to different things. But to me, I see it a matter, unfortunately, is mitigating it and saying, hey, we know these incidents are going to happen. What can we do to lessen the impact when they do? Does that make sense? Sure, for sure. A little bit of a different direction here. This, this is for the, uh, for the student out there. And, and the number one question I get from a lot of my students and, and even people like on, on LinkedIn and, and some on Facebook is, is how do you break into emergency management? And this is a different discussion necessarily of how you break in, but I'm going to twist the question a little bit. If you're interested, if somebody's interested in getting into international emergency management, kind of like what you did, how would they go down that path? Well, first, I know, I know the pain that many students are, are feeling out there, you know, whereas they apply for jobs and they can't get it because they don't have experience. But to get experience, you have to have the job. How do you fight through that? Uh, so there's a couple recommendations I make all the time. I actually have a lot of students reach out to me on um, LinkedIn or on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I do try to do a lot of work with students and speak to student chapters and all this when I can. So if you're listening out there and you have a student chapter or a student group somewhere that you would like, I'm more than willing to come out there and, you know, um, set something up. So, you know, share and encourage them because without the next, next generation, we're in trouble you know, sure. um, we're in trouble. So number one thing I say for students is join IEM, join that association. Great association. When you're a student, you can get a student membership discount. They have jobs boards. And guess what? When you go on the job board, there's a little setting that you can turn that says internship. Internships are key for students, especially when they're 
and ideally when they're doing their their degree. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people where internships result in a job oh, yeah, or a job offer before they come out. So the best way to get experience without being able to get the job is through um, volunteering internships. There's paid internships. I know a gentleman who I think is going to be one of the you know biggest, brightest stars in the future in emergency management. Um, but I won't, I won't mention his name because, you know, I don't want to make his head too big out there. You know what I mean? Uh, but no. Um, and he did a paid internship overseas in, the, in, in Asia. He did that while he was in his senior year of, of college. Also, too, he was the president of his local IAM chapter and did a lot of things to set himself apart and get that experience. So then he's going to be, you know, different employers are going to want him without that. So get associated with an association. Right, and I th- I believe personally, from my experience, I am the best one to do that with. Get your experience in by either doing um, internships or doing volunteer work. Guess what? You can message your local emergency management agency and say, "Hey, I'm a student. Um, I'm with this group at the school, and we would love to volunteer to be d- victims for your next disaster exercise right. or drill. You know, things like that. Um, hey, um, you can join your cert team." You can join your local cert team and get involved with that. Get involved with search and rescue. Then you have things to put on on your resume. Um, I've had people say, hey, do you think I should still do my EMT while going to college and all that? Is it valuable? 100%. If you're working EMS or fire, you deal with emergency management structures all the time. And you have direct response experience on the ground. So that way, when you are an emergency management professional years down the road, you're going to know when you're planning, oh, hey, EMS is going to need this. Oh, hey, fire is going to need that. Um, so that's usually, you know, the the quick uh, advice I give to students is get involved. Get involved. Get to IAM. You're a student and you cannot afford to pay for your registration for IAM. They will let you work it off there as a volunteer yeah. while you're there. Yep. And guess what? The other thing IAM does a lot is it really supports the students. Every time I go, I'm donating items that they auction off. And this last time, they they rose over $28,000 for students. So if you're not an aware students, go to IAM and check out their scholarship They've got hundreds of thousands of dollars that they give out to students as long as you're obviously studying something to do with emergency management. So the world is your oyster. Get out there and get it. Go get go get your pearls and build it into your emergency <laughs> management job. Because, look, I start out as an EMT, and the main reason I became an EMT is because I had a girlfriend at the time who was having some health issues. So I took that to get the experience as an EMT so I, I knew what was going on. And then that led to me... A kid from San Diego ending up in Saudi Arabia leading the first hospital in the world to successful EMAP accreditation. And now I've been working on national policy for the country and helping to create this structure for the whole country. Isn't that a crazy journey? That's a crazy journey. Do you think I had that plan in 2005? No. I just wanted to find out these different uh, what different sicknesses and signs and symptoms meant. And it's led to this. So also, too, I'll say well, my last advice for students even if something you get is not directly emergency management, but it has elements of emergency or disaster or crisis or stress um, woven through and management, take it. Take that opportunity because you never know where it's going to lead and you never know where you're going to find yourself 10 years from now. All right. Toughest question. What book do you recommend to anybody in emergency management? You know, there's a lot of great ones out there. Um, of course, I love books like Team of Teams and, you know, uh, The Spider and the Starfish and all these different things. But is there really, like, one seminal book I could recommend that's going to change your life? 
No, you know what I would recommend? I would recommend, I would recommend focus on networking. Focus yourself on networking. Get out there and meet people. You know, make those connections. Uh, that gentleman I told you about, he wrote me a thank you letter. He hand wrote a thank, he's in, just graduating this year. He hand wrote a thank you letter and emailed it to me in Saudi Arabia. Wow. Build those relationships. You're going to have enough time in school to read books and enough time after school to read books. And I'm not discounting that at all. There's a lot of great ones out there. But use this time right now to focus on building those networks and those relationships because those are truly invaluable in life. And then don't be afraid to get out there and look at this doctrine, look at the FEMA doctrine, look at these different things. Whether you agree with it or like it or not, those are the games, that's the rules you're playing by. Right. And guess what? If you get into those, those policies and those regulations and these different things coming out like Dura and all these things that have been happening, you understand the playing box and you can alter the playing box. Right. You can alter the sandbox if you understand what the rules are because then you could set out to change them if you don't agree with them. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, so this is going to be a different twist of a question, and I have never asked this on, uh, on this show because I haven't had an opportunity to. Now, you and I, we went to the Executive Academy. Yeah. Do you recommend the academies to anybody? 100%. And, you know, that's something else I tell students. Thank you for reminding me, Todd. Get in the academies. Get in the basic academy. Get in the advanced academy. And once you're ready, get in the executive academy. Basic academy is great. Even if you've been working in emergency management for a little bit, get in basic and make sure your, uh, your foundation is great. It's just like math, you know? You need to make sure your foundation understanding is strong. These academies are free. Let me repeat that. These academies are free. They even cover your lodging while you're there. The only thing you pay for is your food and you're traveling there. In some cases, you can get that refunded. Um, me, the only academy I ever did, unfortunately, was the executive academy. Yeah, yeah. I wish I would have known and done the basic and the, and the advanced. Um, and just know the basic and advanced are going to be very like responder oriented. I see us. If this happens, do that. Here's the way we do this. Here's the way we do that. Whereas the executive academy is not that way. It's a high level strategically uh, thinking course meant to develop the leaders of emergency management for the country. Instead of saying, hey, the, the system we use is ICS and this is how it works. In that course, we say, hey, Maybe there's something different than ICS. Hey, maybe we should do this or that. So if you come into the Executive Academy thinking it's going to be um, responder-oriented, yeah, it's, it's not. They're asking you questions, and you're trying to answer them. Yeah, it's very much a, a uh, take a look at the higher level of thinking, thought processes, and, and, and how to lead your team through through that thought process. Exactly. You know, and that's, that's why I really I, I enjoyed that. and course all the connections that that uh we made well andrew we're coming to the end of the uh of the time here it was a pleasure having you back here in the united states and pleasure having you in the studio hey thank you for having me todd and you know i just wanted to say um you know it's it's been great knowing you and i appreciate you bringing me into your office here and for those of you who cannot see it, it is a beautiful office he has the best coffee in the world here uh, but i just want to give one last uh you know thing out there for your listeners when you have a dream or if you have a plan or you want to try something, just give it a shot, you know? What do you have to lose? Nothing. What could you gain? You could possibly gain everything. And you could end up the next person in the next country around the world helping to develop the next 
uh, advancement or emergency management for not only that region, but the entire world. So I want to encourage you all out there to, you know, I don't want to be cliche and say, follow your dreams, but I want to say, don't be afraid of a dream and don't be afraid to seize it and turn it into an opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. And also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you're looking for more information and more emergency management type podcasts, check out sitchradio.com because there's a full laundry list over there. See you next week.